Hello again, dear people, to a new edition of ReporterCast for November 2022. My name is Matej Roska, the reporter who owns the reporter.london website, and my guest today is one of the few people who successfully took on dirty money in her country from a public office and won, though she did so at big personal costs. She had death, death threats and even a suspected attempt to assassinate her or at least badly injure her here in London where she moved after she couldn't be safe any longer in her native Ukraine. She has closed down dozens of dirty banks and pointed out systemic failures in Ukraine and its financial system without fear. And that includes the largest bank in Ukraine at the time, which our guest nationalized. The bank is called Privat Bank and it's um, its story is legendary, but uh, it's, it also has an ongoing litigation process in multiple jurisdictions. So we're going to have to be a bit careful how we, how, how we talk about that. Um, the former owners are known to be very litigious people. It should be clear by now anyway that the name of our special guest is Valeria Hontareva, the former Central Bank Governor of Ukraine, and now a fellow on governance studies for the London School of Economics. Hello, Valeria, and thank you for joining our reporter cast. Yeah, hello, and I'm happy to be there. Thank you. Um, before I start with the questions, I would like to say thank you to our sponsors. Uh, H5 Strategies, a consulting firm in Bucharest, specialized in um, Eastern Europe, Central Asia and Africa, and they advise politicians and business executives. Now, for the, for the first question, uh, Valeria, can you please say a little bit about your early days and what was life before? What was life like before you became a central banker, and uh, how did it happen that you took on the job of of, uh, of uh, the head of the National Bank of Ukraine? Yes, it's a long story because before uh, joining Central Bank, I was a real professional banker. And uh, but long time ago, uh, I started to be uh, started to work like an engineer. But in the beginning of nineties, when uh, we start all this process of Ukrainian independence, uh, my first job was just a very very small clerk in uh, Ukrainian interbank currency exchange. It was the lowest possible position. But after three years, I was already the treasurer of Societe Generale in Ukraine. And after five years, I became head of capital markets uh, with Societe Generale, subsidiary of Societe Generale Bank in Ukraine. And after I became a member of management board and deputy chairman. And in 2001, I switched uh, also, well, not my profession, but I changed the bank and I became uh, also head of financial markets and capital markets within ING Bank Ukraine. It's a subsidiary of ING Bank, and at that time I was also the first deputy chairman of ING Bank in Ukraine. And before I, uh, I left uh, ING Bank in 2007, uh, I really I was already acting chairman of ING Bank in Ukraine, but I decided to do a little of a gamble, and together with my ING partners, we set up uh, own business. 
And before Central, before I joined Central Bank, I was CEO and managed partner of uh, Investment Capital Ukraine in Ukraine. It was the biggest asset manager and it was the biggest trader broker of securities and the biggest uh, investment bank boutique. That's why I was a management partner responsible for asset management. It was my life before I joined Central Bank. So that sounds like a very comfortable life. It sounds like you had a good standard of living no major issues and then um, why change all of this in order to take on probably the the most difficult central banking job in the world at the time anyway? yeah absolutely right the same question my family asked me still now even until now and uh, it was really uh, but you, i will tell you a little bit of history because uh, you think maybe that right now we have a war uh, with Russia and Ukraine, but it's not the beginning of this war. Beginning of, of this war, it was in 2014. And exactly, they annexed Crimea in the beginning of 2014, after revolution of dignity in Ukraine, when our former president Yanukovych left the country. And it was such a mess in a country that to be even in business uh, within a country in mess and in country in war, believe me, it was not my dream. But in the same time, you know, I was really very professional macroeconomist and very professional banker. And when uh, new elected President Poroshenko uh, gave me uh, this uh, proposal to be a governor of Central Bank, first of all, I refused. I said, no way, uh, I'm a private business, uh, I'm with my partners and I'm absolutely, I'm ready to support our country because it was, believe me, in Kiev, it was also after revolution of dignity, you can find some slides, it was also a situation like after the war. It was also a very difficult time in Ukraine. But uh, after, uh, I remember that third time after his proposal I accepted because my family also supported me because they said if uh, like people like you will not help our country to survive, how Ukraine will exist. That's why my final call was uh, of course very patriotic and all my friends, frankly speaking, and all my colleagues, frankly speaking, that time, who joined uh, not only Central Bank, but um, for example, Minister of Finance, she was American citizen, Natalka Yereska. She was also had a very big uh, private equity fund, American private equity fund, Horizon, and she joined like a Minister of Finance. And a lot of, I could call right now, recall right now a lot of friends who, who did it only because of this patriotic uh, appeal uh, to, to do something for your country. And when I joined Central Bank uh, in June 2014, I faced absolutely incredible perfect storm. Right, well this would be my, this would have been my, my second question. Uh, my third question, actually, uh, you're the first woman to become the central, the head of the central bank in Ukraine in, in, in the history of Ukraine. Is that correct? Yes, the first. And after me, right now we have number three uh, new governor of central bank, still man. But uh, yes, I am first, and for for, for the for, for the time being, the last. Right. <laughs> and uh, when you took the job at first, you you already said you knew it was going to be difficult, but. Um, did you realize the scale of the challenges from the start? Did you did you take the job and did you start making changes from the first day? Or how, how did it work? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I thought I realized all changes, but uh, 
believe me, when I joined Central Bank, Russia started a real war in our eastern part in Donbass. And that's why we lost not only 15% of our territory, because when I joined Central Bank, they already annexed Crimea. When we lost territory and we lost 2.5 million people and we lost 3% of our GDP, it was before even I joined Central Bank. But when I joined Central Bank in June, it was started the hot phase of war. It was really bloody war in our territory. And we lost 20% of our GDP, 15% of our territories, and 30% of export revenues because Donbass part, which was occupied by Russia, was a real industrial part of our country. That's why uh, from macro uh, economic prospects, it was absolutely not expected uh, by, by me. Of course, I knew about all coll collected disbalances, which was absolutely awful in all particular um, uh, sphere of our economy. And in the same time, uh, I knew about some uh, banking sector uh, really in a very bad condition. I knew about that, but what I, after saw the reality, I was just shocked. But we started our reform from the first day. And it, of course, it could be a very, very long story, and I will right now show you the, my book, Admission Possible. Thank you. It's uh, the true story of Ukrainian comprehensive banking reform and practical manual for other nations. It's really, really very, very practical. I am person absolutely no zero bullshit person. <laughs> that's why you can find a lot in this book. And it's an Amazon, that's why you can easily find it on Amazon. We'll, we'll put a link to that book on the blog as well. So it will book, uh, I present oh, it to you, you. Uh, that's why I hope you uh, sign it. If not, uh, I will, I will, do, I will I'll make do. you sign it after uh, we yes, finish yes, filming. Yes, I will. Thank you. And so, yes, so then um, you restructured the internal organization of the central bank. You let go of many people there. You floated the currency, which a lot of people didn't like. And uh, these were radical things you did. Uh, they were considered radical things anyway. And when you look back, do, are you proud of these things, or do you think there was another way? Yeah, uh, I could tell you that I'm not just proud, I'm really, really proud <laughs> of uh, all of that. And moreover, uh, if you ask right now Ukrainian bankers about our reforms, it was only one reason why our banks didn't fail during this uh, phase of war. It was only reason why our banking system is really resilient, very well capitalized and very liquid. And our reserves, currency reserves is really high to support inter exchange rate even till now after eight months of really bloody war. That's why I'm really proud of that. And uh, uh, my book is started from uh, my first meeting when I became uh, governor of Central Bank, I went to Washington to an um, annual meeting of IMF and I asked a special meeting uh, with um, uh, Federal Reserve Deputy uh, Stanley Fisher. Mm. Uh, Stanley Fisher, for me, he was a guru. You know, when I was a banker, for me, Stanley Fisher was like my... I never met him before, but like my personal guru, because he was not just macroeconomist, he also managed, he was a governor of Central Bank of Israel during the wartime. 
and also he was a really, for, for me, it was really like a very prominent person. And I ask, uh, that's why my book started uh, exactly the first page of my book from these words. And when I met uh, Stanley Fisher and described him our problems, war in our territory, our budget didn't envisage any uh, provisions for military expenses, all uh, collected disbalances, absolutely uh, ill banking system. And I count, count and count, and uh, Mr. Fisher said, Sorry, I could not help you. This mission impossible. And after this book uh, called Mission Possible, because after three years we switch, we completed. I put my resignation letter because of death threats, but we completed all major reform. We switched to flexible exchange rate. We implemented new monetary policy of inflation targeting. Also, we clean up completely Ukrainian banking system and uh, really enhanced its resilience for Vaze. Uh, and also, we completely transformed Central Bank from medieval monster to modern Central Bank. That's why I'm really, really proud of that. Fantastic. Well, in light of all of that, we have some leaders today and decision makers, including here in the UK, political crisis after political crisis and it seems that people are afraid to make a decision and I just wondered if you could give us a flavor of your reasoning and how you, how you decide what to do when you're faced with a difficult choice, a radical choice, radical situations, how do you get over difficulties as a manager? Yeah, uh, for, as first a of all I propose to all political leaders to engage real, uh, real professionals and real technocrats for all these reforms because if you because like political leader all the time you create very good slogans you know and try to appeal people try to be populistic but if you decided that you need to do some radical reforms engage professional people there are such people in this world believe me i know even such kind of people not only in ukraine but around the globe uh, that's why, uh, you know, when you are a real technocrat, you start, and my book is about that, from what to, to start, what should you do first? You need a real exact plan, uh, but first of all, you need to set up hierarchy of your priorities. But when we decided to do reforms, for, for us it was again some question, what to do first? I arrived to the central bank. Uh, former President uh, Yanukovych, uh, uh, allies, uh, allies sitting around the table, all corrupted. Uh, I am alone, uh, like one uh, white knight. Uh, but again, uh, when you start to do something, you, you, you start to think what to do, how to change people. For example, when I joined Central Bank, it was 12,000 people. When I left Central Bank, it was 5,000 people. And my uh, further uh, reduction of people should be to 2,000 only, because for such a uh, country like Ukraine, 2,000 uh, in supervisory and monetary policies, it's more than enough. I think 2,000 is the exact size what we need to achieve. And uh, you always do, should have your plan. For example, liberalization initially we introduced absolutely draconic administrative measures because you need to stop panic. But after we created a roadmap and roadmap of liberalization of market, 
and it's uh, how reformers work. Uh, the, there is some aims and the way from disastrous uh, point A to, you know, ro rosy future point B. But it's step by step. It's very, very technical procedure how to do that. And it's written in my book how okay. to do that. Well, why don't we send a couple of copies of your book to, to the, the Palace of Westminster? <laughs> Yeah, and, um, uh, believe me, we need uh, for Palace of uh, Westminster. We need right now NHS specialist, not NHS healthcare specialist. I think it's a priority here, and real estate market specialist. It's not me, but I could help with. Uh, I have a question. Person. I have a question about the economy in a second. But first of all, there's there's a personal question. You said when you when you first got requ requested to join the central bank, you said no. Yes. But I then said you no. said yes. No, it, it was third attempt, third uh, attempt. not only president. Twice, no once, yes. Yes, so third how time, many, yes. So how many times do I have to ask you now, on the record, if you're, go if you're ever going to join Ukrainian politics? <laughs> Never ever, not just Ukrainian pol politics. Uh, sorry, I'm absolutely, I'm very, very technocratic uh, person. And sometimes for me it's very difficult even to hear what uh, politicians are promised and how populistic they are. That's why it's absolutely not, not my cup of tea. It's not. Are you sure? Tea. Yes, I'm sure. This is the third time I'm asking you. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure about that. I'm sure. Okay, well, let's leave it there. Then. And the uh, question now about the economy. Uh, interest rates are going up around the world, more or less. Every, every central bank is increasing interest rates. The economy is slowing down. Uh, people are worried about house prices mortgages. What do you think? Do you think we're headed for a financial crisis or what? Unfortunately, yes. I think that the next stage of this turmoil will be financial crisis, unfortunately. But uh, I could explain you what's happened. Uh, during the last uh, 15 years, uh, we decided, not we, but uh, politicians and unfortunately some central bankers as well, decided that uh, they found panacea from all diseases. They cure all diseases using some printing money machine in a central bank. That's why right now balance sheet of all uh, big international central banks, it's, it's the highest level ever. I could not even tell you it's a triple, uh, their balance sheet tripled during last 10 years. And uh, of course, uh, when you uh, asked me about, you remember global financial crisis of 2008? It was quite good decision that time, how to treat uh, this crisis and how to manage that. But after, because everybody thinks that, oh my God, it's such a nice, idea we could inject money without any limits uh, we could uh, it will be like uh, you know distribute money from helicopter for uh, all, all people around the globe and after we started to use this technology for everything but unfortunately all all this money were real rocket fuel for assets prices that's why it was incredible uh, you, you know uh, price uh, for or some financial instruments uh, in, uh, in US and the every, what they call the everything bubble. Uh, it was zero environment for pension funds. Uh, they try to do more risky operations. Banks start to do more risky operations only because zero rate environment will not allow them to earn anything. 
it was absolutely wrong that time. And after, of course, started COVID, and, and again, everybody decided that we will treat COVID just injecting new fresh money. And unfortunately, right now it's an energy crisis. But after what we'd like to achieve in the energy crisis, we just we provide subsidies, we again printing money. In energy crisis, we need to create the right concept of energy. And after this right concept of energy required right plan how to reach that. So you need a supply of energy, not a supply of, of more money. Of course, the same with real estate. Why I, I told that here we need exactly an NHS specialist for uh, a real estate specialist and energy specialist as well. Because for me, it's absolutely clear that um, good mix of uh, green uh, nuclear energy but uh, and uh, hydrogen energy, it's only one solution. And if we use even printing money, our capital and time and resources productively, we will get uh, everything what we need. But if we use unproductively like we did it before, we face the music right now with all this so, absolutely incredible uh, inflation and these prices. So is this, is this crisis that's already beginning, is it inevitable or not? Of course, uh, of course, we, we, we just uh, face the music uh, and reap the harvest uh, what we, uh, of all our mistakes during the last 10 years. Okay, well, that's that's a bit sad, isn't it? No, but it's not time for us maybe to be frustrated. It's time for us to think how to act properly. How? Because some people really afraid of world reform. They think that reform is something. No, reform it's about efficiency. Reform is just about efficiency. It's interesting. It's an interesting thought. Now back to Ukraine and back to to the period where you were closing down banks, because a lot of people don't know this history, and I think it's very important to, to look at what happened in, in Ukraine and in general in Eastern Europe before the invasion. Uh, there were a lot of dirty banks belonging to people who had links to oligarchs, organized crime, and ultimately Russia, Moscow, the Kremlin. Could you talk a little bit about this? Any cases in particular that you remember, yeah. that banks that you had to close, and what was, what was happening yeah. there? Maybe uh, we will start from, we close completely 100 banks. It was a number of banks, it was like a 50% of our banking system, 55-0. It was absolutely incredible, but it's only because it was not bank. There are no banks. It was money laundering machine. Also, it was so-called zombie banks, and I will elaborate a little more about what does it mean, zombie banks. It was oligarch banking model, and after it was some foreign banks, like Refise and AG, a good one, of course, and after it was 15% uh, of Russian state banks in our banking system uh, was 15% of Russian, of our market share was 15% of Russian state banks. Believe me, state banks when the country in a war with this particular state, and also it was about thirty uh, percent of state banks, uh, Ukrainian state Ukrainians. banks, Bank and Ashadny, like a saving bank. In Ukrainian, it's Ashadny Bank. But believe me, this bank was, this bank were in awful condition. 
because all political elites use this bank like their own wallet. Uh, you know, it means that oligarchs use their banks uh, like their own uh, printing machine, money machine, yeah. but uh, state elite use we'll state say. banks for the same so reason. Two, two parallel issues. One, money laundering. Two, giving out loans that were never going to be paid back. Yes, it's it's oligarch banking. Uh, third, it's a state banks when uh, state recapitalized this bank all the time and provided all the time money to some people, uh, you know, with uh, linked to governmental position. It's, it's corruption. It's a 100% uh, corruption. And that's why, uh, you know, and Zombie Bank, it's a bank with no assets at all, just with liabilities, you know, for uh, some, and money laundering machine, of course, as well. And uh, oligarch banking, as you mentioned, absolutely, they only gather money from all possible sources, including euro bonds, central bank refinancing, whatever source, uh, some in international financing. And after provided all this money to just to his shareholders, main shareholders, and never supposed to be repaid. Right. Uh, you know, and uh, if you ask me about, uh, of course, uh, the biggest fraud was private bank. And because it was systemically important bank and the market share of this bank at that time was 30%, 30% in private individual deposits. Could you imagine that there is nothing such in the history of the world when 30% of private individual deposits of one particular country stay in a private bank? Because in Russia, for example, all biggest uh, retail bank is uh, Russian saving bank, you know, Russian and, uh, own, uh, publicly owned, uh, or uh, not publicly, but uh, state owned. In uh, China, it's also the biggest bank in state owned. In America, the biggest retail banks are publicly owned. That's why when such monster appear in our territory and when I ask all my colleagues uh, around the globe please help me we should do something with that how to do that and I'm very very appreciate that uh, IMF and uh, World Bank uh, and US Treasury helped me a lot with this project right. but uh, uh, just to be clear there was a there was what five billion missing from uh, private bank like yeah 5.5 billion dollars uh, but again for example if you compare with Ponzi scheme of Madoff in the US you think well, 5.5 billion here and 60 billion there why you think that it's the biggest one but you need to compare the, 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 the magnitude of fraud with the GDP of your country. Of it was a 40% of our monetary supply. If mm. a central banker, it's clear Good what God, I'm talking yeah. about. No, it's huge. But um, I'm, I'm going to ask you a slightly political one now. Um, we know that before invading, before fully invading in February, Putin had spent a lot of money trying to infiltrate Ukraine. And I wonder, do you think Russia wanted to use the banking system of Ukraine to make Ukraine weaker in order to make it more invadable? Uh, I could tell you no, uh, and I could explain you why. Because in 2014, we was not sitting uh, silently, you know. We immediately, first of all, introduced a lot of different type of conditions for Russian state banks. And after we uh, asked Russian state banks uh, to 
do some debt to equity swap, just recapitalize their uh, bank uh, through their uh, loans from mother's banks. It means that uh, they have very limited room for maneuver. We monitor them specially, that's why. And finally, when I left, uh, these banks uh, were already uh, eliminated. It's not anymore in the market. First was VTB, second was uh, uh, web uh, subsidiary Prominvest, and the third uh, recently uh, was uh, closed completely. It's a saving bank in Ukraine. But believe me, in 2014-2015, we introduced such draconic measures against these banks that it was not a risk uh, ri risky for Ukraine yes, anymore. But uh, not only the state banks, but also. Um, Private, privately held banks that were engaged privately in organized crime, money laundering. Yeah, but we'll we clean up Ukrainian banking system. What I told you, it was a very difficult exercise. But the starting in, in 2015, first of all, we did as a quality review after stress test and after we start recapitalization of banking system and. Anyone who didn't deliver their promises, not recapitalize bank properly, were get out from market. That's why we closed 100 banks. And one of them uh, uh, really was too big to fail, private bank was nationalized. That's why Ukrainian banking system was clear, very good capitalized, uh, transparent. Because first of all, we introduced very strict rule against uh, beneficiary owners. Uh, because you know uh, it's it's a still problem in some European banks, uh, but I, in my book is written how to uh, do all this exercise with related lending and with beneficial owners recognition. That's why it's it's a complex reform and we yes. need it. But um, so is it fair to say that having these these dirty banks in Ukraine made Ukraine weaker and uh, uh, it was necessary to to improve the whole economy and the whole society? Yeah, to but clean it, it was cleaned up in 2015. That's why after that it was a really good, good success story in Ukraine with and very very good control because we did all our reforms in parallel. It was also main idea for all reformers to understand how to do that because. When we are talking about uh, exchange rate or we are talking about monetary policy, it's a macro frame. When we are talking about ba uh, banking sector, it's a banking supervision. But when we are talking about central bank itself, it should have the cap uh, capacity to do that. If you should not, uh, if you didn't change the central bank procedures committees, yes. how you but, will do proper supervision? But mostly, I'm referring to what was happening before you came in. Yeah, but it was awful. Uh, uh, you know, uh, my book is really started from this point uh, uh, when I saw Ukrainian banking sector in details because in the central bank everything is more visible because. Uh, when uh, uh, you outside of uh, central bank, you could only consider official statements. But if, for example, PricewaterhouseCoopers, they confirm uh, a few of these uh, five years in a row, or maybe even more, they confirm the financial statements of private bank. It's the biggest fraud in the history of uh, of this world, financial history, but they confirm. Of course, each time they uh, wrote a disclaimer, that we do not uh, responsible for anything because management provided us this information. But sorry, guys, you are auditors. Uh, you, you should be responsible to uh, identify fraud. Yes. And what, what is, just, just so people understand, because not everybody is an expert in this, what is the effect on, on society when you have 
monster box like this. In fact, uh, you, you know, you, you could have uh, right now we nationalized this bank, and this bank is a really very, the most profitable one in our country. But it's a state-owned bank, and that's why tomorrow, of course, we need to consider uh, how not to concentrate all assets in the state hands because we'd like to build capitalism, not socialism, uh, back again. But again, it will be some challenge for this bank after the war time. It will be IPO, I suppose, of this bank, or maybe it will be some strategic sale. But for uh, why we nationalize this bank, but not, uh, you know, uh, send this bank to deposit um, uh, fund for liquidation? It's only because it was uh, not just 30% of uh, private individual deposits, it was also 50% of. Uh, business and monetary transactions in a country it's like uh, really a very big retail bank and that's why for, for our population we save their money of course state paid for that 5.5 uh, billion but for population we save their money right. and we save country from lockdown if this bank will be yeah. liquidated it will be just lockdown for people mm -hmm. because it was 20 million credit cards in their pockets if mm -hmm. one day they recognize that they have no even their money and cards yeah and the owners of Privat when when the war started they financed the fight against Russia they financed even the now famous Azov but you know, it's a fairy tale of 2014 because if you remember in 2014, uh, uh, he's under American sanctions uh, two maybe last two years. Uh, someone told you a story of 2014 when he'd like to be a governor of uh, Dnipropetrovsk region and uh, he supported something through his business initially just to gather all assets of this region. If you consider what the board uh, when war started, it was in, not even in, in, it was in the middle of Donetsk region. After Donetsk region, there is Zaporizhia, and after, after that only Dnipropetrovsk region. That's why you know it's a fairy tale, which distributed by Mr. Kalamoisky. Right, and also um, before that, Privat and especially the Latvian unit of Privat was doing a whole lot of business with Russia. A whole lot of business with Kremlin. Yeah, well, of course, it's, it's a money laundering machine in uh, Latvia, no doubt about that. And uh, apart from Privat, there were also other banks that were doing the same thing. Yeah, absolutely, it was my first call. It's even written in this book because it was my first first call uh, when I became the governor of Central Bank. I asked. Uh, uh, in Washington, I asked governors of three regions to meet with me and discuss these problems. Because when you have money laundering machine in your country, but how they do that? Uh, they initiated money laundering process, yes. But facilitators of all this process, of course, it's European banks because it means money laundering when you withdraw money from Ukraine through different corrupted schemes and try to transfer uh, this money abroad. You use some foreign banks and especially it was Latvian banks. And uh, Cyprus was a long story, but after the crisis of 2008, uh, when uh, the, their banking sector collapsed, you remember maybe all this story, uh, Cyprus was quite cooperative and, never, uh, and stopped to do uh, all these dirty operations. But that time it was Latvia. Latvia was top top one, and second one was Austria. 
and I asked uh, governors of these banks uh, to immediately to meet with me. I show all, all of them, and uh, for example, in Austria it was minor bank, and in Latvia it was not just a subsidiary private bank. It was different type of uh, banks. But you know, the governor of Latvia and head of supervision of Latvia right now on the investigation. And, criminal. That's why uh, how they could react it for my call. So you had, they, a, you had a call with this man? Of course. For all, I met them all three years, each year when I was in Washington and uh, all this. Uh, I always ask Latvian Central Banking to meet with me because to discuss how they could help us with clean up of all this mess. And were they helpful? No. Right. Well, that's interesting. But right now they are under investigations themselves. That's why I could answer even why they didn't help us. Before, I, will, I think maybe they are not brave to do that. Right now I understand that they were somehow involved, maybe. Potentially. And uh, well, before my next question, I would like to say again thank you to our sponsors at H5 Strategies in Bucharest, a political and executive consulting firm specialized in Eastern Europe. Africa and Central Asia, and it's it's also worth mentioning the sponsors are not involved in, in the interviews or the content, the journalistic content. They give us our independence completely and uh, we thank them for this. And uh, that said, another question um, would be uh, about uh, the threats, of course, yes, the, you, you had threats, harassment, hate mail. And uh, ultimately, even after you moved to London, you had an attempt on your life. Do yeah, you want to talk you know, about that a little bit, please? Uh, no, it's, you, it's, it's you, not too you, painful. You know, no, 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 it's not because of too painful. I could not speculate about London attack because it was not proved that it was someone special. Uh, but what happened exactly? Uh, yeah, it was some car uh, uh, accident in a road. Uh, but uh, what's happened after it was uh, really very interesting. Because when I stay in a hospital of a very bad condition, uh, in Ukraine, they blew up uh, the car of my son. Uh, next day, uh, next week, they uh, intruded to my uh, Kiev's apartment. It was 10 uh, people in masks and uh, in, with machine guns. And after uh, additional week, they, they, they really earthened my house to ash. You they burned down your house? Yes, they burned my house to ash. You can find, or I could send you some uh, even video from all this awful, because it was in all newspapers around the globe. It was attacked, uh, really very uh, awful attack. But after they also tried some uh, pro pro persecution, uh, political, and even in London, uh, one oligarch uh, launched some uh, claim against me because during the privatization uh, process uh, it was bailed, bailed, we bailed in some related parties money in to, to, to decrease capital hole mm -hmm. and uh, the, one of these oligarchs of course he was sponsored by Kolomoisky for all his uh, legal expenses here in London no doubt about that he even launched uh, some claim against me for $250 million. And of course I won 
uh, everything. Uh, oh, he didn't even appeal to this because it was uh, for them it was like humiliation. But it was especially done to destroy my life because even if you win uh, the court case, you obliged to pay all these fees because it's very expensive here to pay all this uh, solicitor, barrister, it's a very, very special system. And after they re uh, the court reimbursed me only 80%, means that 20% is still lost. For me, it's a very big money. When for these oligarchs, it's just the peanuts from the, their billions. Okay. That's why they try to destroy my life even uh, now. Last year, I won just this to be court sure, case. Just, uh, just, just, just to be clear, um, there was never a proper investigation into the attempts uh, um... in London, uh, it was some investigation, but they didn't uh, tell that something suspicious was in this particular case. But but everything in chain was really, really very suspicious. Yes, but th there was no one officially pointing the finger at anyone. Uh, they, they opened the case, but they after they said that they didn't find any linkage with Russian or Ukrainian. Uh, but who knows? Right now, you know, internet. Uh, work for some killers uh, better than official investigations. Good Lord. <laughs> yes, but I do not want to speculate for that. I could yeah, only count just uh, uh, all other problems which already happened with me and daily, the threats which I got in Ukraine and absolutely incredible slander campaign uh, in, against me, against my family. You know, it, it's, it's awful. It's awful. Yeah, I'm really sorry about that. Uh, can I bring you to the topic of the war now, the, the current war the, since the invasion, the, since the re-invasion of February? Uh, could you talk a little bit about how the um, financial support of, of, of the foreign partners of Ukraine should, should be organized? Um, there's a lot of debate today about reparations, reconstruction. How should that be done, do you think? What's, what's your view on that? Yeah, first of all, from the first minute of this war, I started to, to, to write to all my contacts around the globe uh, sanctions proposal, and I'm very happy that uh, a lot of my proposals already implemented. And second uh, one, I started, I, I volunteered to do business support program for Ukraine, and I did it together with 10 other participants, and uh, that's why it was also my help to Ukraine during the wartime. And right now, of course, I'm very, uh, very, very um, actively participate in all this preparation to so-called Marshall Plan, mm. uh, because uh, we need, of course, very, very good organized uh, plan for Ukrainian reconstruction and recovery. And of course, sometimes uh, Ukraine requires such a big amount of money for the reconstruction and uh, recovery that sometimes it's not even, um, you know, in line with possibility of all international financial organization. And you know that uh, it was your question before, right now, central bank start to a little bit uh, uh, tighten uh, their monetary policy. It's not the time to cure all disease using money printing machine. That's why, uh, uh, you know, uh, for Ukraine it will be quite difficult. Um, but again, um, uh, you know, the main idea to have a right plan and right strategy what to do. 
Um, because uh, if uh, when hot stage of wars uh, stopped, I think we need immediately to start this recovery. Even right now, in parallel, we need to recover some very crucial infrastructure because uh, Russia, for example, they bombing daily our uh, electricity uh, grids, and we need to do that even right now. That's why, uh, of course, all these big uh, Marshall Plan should be stages right now stage even during the hot phase of war and after of course the more intensive rebuilding and recovery after the end of war because i worried about how this war will be ended when we really recall to official start of martian plan because you know it's very difficult putin will never sign off any capitulation agreement Ukraine will never put their flag uh, to Kremlin. Uh, that's why we need to find uh, some very, very um, normal solution uh, for and good signal for international markets that uh, hot um, phase of war uh, is somehow stopped. Course, and we need to start our recovery. It's very, very important from technical point of view because otherwise, you know, uh, any investments in a country in war never even covered by insurance. Right now, even yesterday, I had a meeting when we discuss again war, war insurance products, because right now only one multinational organization, multilateral so-called MIGA, it's a part of World Bank, they could issue some war protection. Because all other, for example, uh, experts, uh, credit agencies like uh, Hermes or CAFA, they could do some very limited protection from war. But uh, we need, of course, for, to, to give some confidence to investors and to private sectors that it will be not destroyed tomorrow. It's a main idea. And of course, what kind of money we should uh, use for this absolutely incredible amount what we need for, Russian, uh, for, for, for Ukrainian reconstruction, it's Russian money. No doubt that it's already frozen 300 billion dollars. And I truly believe that even 50% of that should go to Ukraine directly through fund, of course, through with very good procedure of monitoring how they use this money, no doubt about that. But maybe other 50% of this could go to, to G7 to cover their expenses because right now they support Ukraine for $80 billion, 80, 80. Uh, My financial support was 20, but military support, humanitarian support, support of our refugees, total amount of 80 billion. And part of that should go to directly to um, companies which suffer their business and, and left uh, Russian market. And this company with uh, war protection, with war insurance, uh, should start to do real recovery of, of inside Ukraine. Ukraine. Inside Ukraine. It, it will be a win-win situation, I think. And uh, th th that's why we're not just grab all this money. Uh, to just for Ukraine, but it's better to distribute them properly and after to attract them like a private investment to our country. It's my personal view. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And uh, this, just to be clear, so, so people have the background, 
Russia had what 400 billion in foreign reserves. 300, 300. was uh, it was already uh, frozen. Yes, but frozen, not confiscated. We yeah. need to so reserves with other central banks in yes, the world. Yes, it's a central bank reserve. That, is, that the central easy. bank of Russia was keeping in other central yes. banks in New York, London, yes, and yes, so yes, forth. Yes, and yes. when when uh, when Russia sent its tanks over the border, these reserves were frozen. Yes, it's frozen, but, it's still frozen. But they haven't been taken away from no, Russia. No, it's not yet it's been frozen. just frozen. But now the debate is that, you know, you have war crimes happening daily. It's clear the Russians, from the top of the army, from the top of the Kremlin, have a strategy to commit war crimes in Ukraine. They order missiles shot into Absolutely. civilian areas, missiles, ballistic missiles. Yes, Country aggressor, country terrorist. That's so, why it's very easy to confiscate right now all, all these frozen reserves in the favor of Ukraine and other. So based on this, G7. this could be this yeah. could be a legal a legal basis yeah. to take this money and give it to yeah, Ukraine. Yeah, I think it's a clear legal uh, basis for that. For okay. oligarchs, Russian oligarchs, it's more difficult situation because you need to prove that they somehow finance terrorism. But for Russian Federation, it's easy. For the central bank reserves, yes. strictly. Yes. Okay. And now, That's why we already found Russian, 300 billions, you know. Yeah. Speaking of the Russian central bank, Elvira Nabulina, I think you know her personally. Yes, I know her. Could you tell us a little bit about how you knew her? And um, do you think now, given her role in the regime today, do you think she should be under international sanctions? Yeah, yeah. she already under international sanctions. She already under sanctions. The first sanctions From were Canada. Canada, after it was US and UK as well. She's under oh, she's under UK yes. sanctions as well. So all, all under all sanctions. Unfortunately, of course, uh, better late uh, than never, but it was happened only recently. During the first day of the war, when I mentioned that I, uh, I know Elvira Nabiulina, she is a really good professional banker. And uh, in 2015, she was recognized the best banker in the world, uh, believe me, a central banker. And uh, she, from professional point of view, it's absolutely right. Uh, but my recommendation to Elvira Nabiulina that day was uh, fixed uh, whatever you need to fix for urgent administrative measures. It was concrete uh, for central banking. It's, I will not bother her, our audience with all this stuff. But after I said, fix it and put your resignation letter. Put your resignation letter and not participate in this absolutely awful war. It's a humiliation of all civilized society. And otherwise, if you will not do that, you will be the same criminal like Putin because you will support Putin's war regime. Unfortunately, she didn't do that. Someone says that she tried to do that. Uh, but again, I could explain, I could tell you how I uh, resigned from Central Bank. I put my resignation letter to President and after it was a press conference when I said that, guys, I give you one, one month to provide official resignation because official resignation should be done only in the parliament according to Ukrainian constitution. And after I said, I will stay with you one month and I'm waiting for this resignation. If not, I will not appear in a central bank, no one day. 
And after one month, I signed, um, I signed my first deputy, like acting governor, and left Central Bank. I was officially resigned only in 11 months. That's why if there is a will, there is a way. And that's why it's my call for Nabiulina. If you really like to do that, you could find how to do that. Right. And when was your last conversation with her? During the before I, I resigned in 2017, I suppose it was in Washington during this annual meeting. Yeah. Um, this is the end of our podcast episode for November, and huge thanks to Mrs. Hontareva for taking the time from her busy schedule and speaking with us. And a final thanks to H5 Strategies in Bucharest. Um, executive and political consultancy specialized in Eastern Europe, Africa and Central Asia. And uh, thanks to everyone in the audience as well. Yes, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh,